0: Last night, yesterday morning, actually, Allie reminded me, Andrew, when are you going to have time to finish getting ready for your message? I thought, oh, I hadn't thought through the fact that we have plans all day long. But she gave me some good time in the morning, so it worked out okay. Um, so a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, um, I had been kind of learning a lesson from God. He was re-reminding re- me about something that he taught me before, Um. And I was sitting in here in church, and I realized, oh, like, this isn't just for me. It's for the congregation. So I was at the end of service when I normally come up and kind of get a chance to say a few words to kind of tie things up. I was trying to figure out how I wanted to talk about what I felt like God was saying, and nothing was fitting. I couldn't make a way for it to fit in my head. And then I realized, oh, so I knew that Tom, one of our elders, was looking for someone to preach on the 5th today today. I was like, shoot, that's because, God, you want me to talk about it on the 5th, and so I was excited that I didn't have to preach again before Pastor Mike came, but then God said, no, you need to. So that is where this message came from. That's the story behind it, Um, but before I actually get into the message, I just want to tell you a fun story. Um, I like telling God stories because I think it builds faith when we hear things that God has done in one another's lives, so this is just a fun story that God reminded me of this week, and I've actually been thinking about it a lot for some reason. I think it has to do with the fact that um, it's just a really good reminder that God is real. He pays attention to our prayers, and he shows up in unexpected ways sometimes. So when I was in college, I was my wife's laughing at me because she knows the story I'm going to tell. Uh, I was at a 24-hour prayer night, and I had come kind of to the front and was just kneeling down by the stairs praying, not out loud, just to myself. And um, in Romans, it talks about when you come to church, greet one another with a holy kiss you guys are familiar with that passage at all we don't do that anymore it's a cultural thing we can learn the principle about uh greeting one another and showing affection to one another but um i don't go up to phyllis and and lay one on her at church because that's not our culture anymore and, and it's probably a good thing that's not our culture anymore um but it talks about when you come together as the brethren and so some people call that the brotherly kiss and so um I was praying and I was remembering that verse and I was thinking just about men and men's relationships and how I felt like there was something God wanted to do about restoring genuine uh, men in relationship with one another and uh, that bond and even just like a level of affection that can often be missing in our culture. And I was like really feeling this, like it was really important. So I was up there, my eyes were shut, but I was like really interceding for this thing just in my head. And all of a sudden... Mind you, uh, I was probably like 22 at this point in time, 23, and this never had happened to me before, never has happened since then. So the odds of this happening in that circumstance are, you know, one in whatever. Um, I was, my eyes shut, just praying, and all of a sudden, I get a kiss on my cheek, and I look up, and my friend Brian was there, and I was like, Brian, what are you doing? And he said, God told me to come up and kiss you on the cheek. I was praying that God would restore the brotherly kiss. And my friend Brian comes up and God tells him to kiss me on the cheek. So I, I just love that God is very real and he listens to our prayers and um, he shows up in unexpected ways. So who has ever been afraid of anything? <laughs> who would admit that there still is fear in your life? You'd like it to not be there, but it, there's places where fear sometimes gets the best of you. Everyone's hand should be up because it's true for all of us. Um, what, are some, what are some common fears? You can shout them out. What? Spiders? I'm terrified of spiders. I don't like them. I have a – I was terrified of spiders before this, but I have a scar on my arm right here from where um, a hobo spider bit me, and I had a really bad allergic reaction to it. And it filled up and popped and filled up and popped, and it was gross, and then it scabbed. And then my mom was sitting next to me in the movie theater, and she had a jean jacket on, and she stood up, and it ripped the scab off of my arm, and it was painful. I don't like spiders. Uh, Other (laughs) fears. Fireworks, fire, yes, yes, was there a fear? Snakes, I don't like snakes. I saw this uh, photo stream on Facebook the other day of a python, I think it was a python, that ate a twenty-nine pound porcupine and it killed the snake because of all the quills inside of it. But I do not like snakes. Anyone else not like snakes? Sharks? Yeah. Yeah, okay, so we all there's different fears we all have. Um Some fears are rational, right? Like if I saw a tank with sharks swimming in it, and these were not like sharks that had been trained to swim with divers and whatnot, and I was falling into this tank, it would probably be rational for me to feel some fear at that point in time, right? But when I'm little, this is a true story, when I was little and I go to the wave pool and I'm scared that sharks are going to get me in the wave pool, that's probably an irrational fear, right? Right? And there's probably a spectrum of some fears being between rational and irrational. Okay, so uh, this lesson that God had been reminding me about had to do with irrational fear. And I started noticing that I had been experiencing a lot of irrational fear lately. I'm not a person that lives in much fear, but all of a sudden, anytime our kids went out to play, I was terrified that one wasn't going to be there, or a car would come whipping through the neighborhood, and and we live in a cul-de-sac, and come whipping through and hit one of them. I just had all these they're, they're rational on some level, but it wasn't my norm to function in that. The kids play out there all the time. People drive safely. And the way that these were just bombarding my mind, it was irrational fear. In the church, there's a balcony ledge up. Has anyone seen it by the kiosk where that balcony ledge is? I've thought – I probably shouldn't be saying this out loud. I've thought several times, like, what if a child, like, climbed up there and fell off? That would be terrible. And for whatever reason, every in the last, like, month or so – for about a month, every time I came in that door, I would see that balcony, and just this fear would well up in me. And what if this child were to fall off? And when my kids were playing in the church, what if one of them climbs up there and fell off? And so I recognized there was this irrational fear that had been kind of plaguing my mind lately. Um, sometimes irrational fear can look like insecurity. We just get really insecure for some reasons. For some reason, uh, sometimes people have irrational fear related to their salvation. Uh, what if? What if God doesn't love me? What if I'm not really saved? What if? Um, What if I'm not going to go to heaven? There's all different kinds of fears that can attack us and on some level of rationality to irrationality. So when I recognized that this had been going on, I remembered a story in the Bible that I'd heard a man give a message on related to irrational fear. Uh, It's in 1 Kings 18 and 19. It's the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. Now, I didn't realize this. The Sunday that Pastor Mike spoke, I was upstairs with the kids because I wanted all the teachers to be able to be down here which that is a rational fear to be me by myself with all of the kids upstairs. Very rational fear. Um, but it went well. Um, so I was up there. I didn't hear him speak, but I found out this is actually the same story that he shared about. Um, but we're going to come at it from a different angle, look at a different aspect of the story. So King Ahab was a king in Israel, and the Bible talks about how he was a terrible king, did terrible things. He married a woman named Jezebel. There was another country, Sidon, I think it was. There were the Sidonians and Ahab married the king's daughter. Her name was Jezebel. So Jezebel was familiar with royalty. She was a princess. Um, She comes in, and now she's a queen. And Ahab is incited by Jezebel to begin Baal and Asherah worship, foreign gods, foreign deities that they've brought on. And Jezebel begins to bring several prophets of Baal and prophets of Asherah, and she starts killing off one by one the prophets of the Lord. Now Elijah is angry about this. He is a prophet of the Lord. He's probably angry for multiple reasons. She's killing uh, his brothers, and potentially she has a death wish out against him now as well. Uh, He declares that there's going to be a three-year drought over the nation of Israel, uh, God's prophetic judgment related to what's going on, Um, and then he runs and hides very legitimate. She's killing all the prophets. He goes and hides. After three years, God says, okay, come back. It's time to go and face Ahab and Jezebel. So he goes and he ushers in this contest between himself and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He brings all the prophets in and they have however long to call upon their gods to come and consume a sacrifice with fire. And He's taunting them while they're doing this. It's not working. And ultimately, Elijah pours water on the sacrifice and calls on God, and God sends fire and consumes it. And then they kill all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and God has this incredible victory that takes place. God shows himself as real. He shows his authority. Elijah's his man. This incredible victory. And then all of a sudden, Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. Surely I'm going to come, and you're going to die. And then he runs in terrible fear. And here are the verses that um, talk about that. This is 1 Kings 193 through 5. You don't need to turn there because I'm just going to zip through a few of these. Elijah, this is right after Jezebel threatens his life. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While well, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So, what about that seems like potentially an irrational fear? He ran, he was afraid, and hid. Now, if the queen threatens your life, there'd be some rationality behind that, right? But what in this scenario demonstrates demonstrates that there's some irrationality behind that? humongous victory, huge victory. He'd been in hiding for three years. Jezebel hadn't killed him. He comes out, huge victory. God shows himself supreme, great authority. And then all of a sudden, Jezebel says, I'm coming after you. And Elijah freaks out and he runs for his life and says, take me. I'm no better than my ancestors. I want to die. It seems a little double-minded and it seems a little crazy. So God's talking to Elijah and God says, what are you doing here? And he replies, this is verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Another thing that's relevant to me in this story is not only is he kind of just afraid for his life, he feels very isolated right now. He tells God, I'm the only one who's left. So there's irrational fear going on, There's this sense of isolation going on. Those are usually tied together. And then in verse 15, God talks to Elijah, and he says, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there. The reason why I tagged those verses on, two things. First of all, God points out, you may feel like you're the only one, but I reserve 7,000, you're not the only one. So there's this irrational fear, there's this sense of isolation that isn't accurate. Elijah feels like he's the only one, and he's not. Um, and finally, God talks to him, and all of a sudden now he, He's feeling terrible. He wants to die. And then he gets up and he goes and he starts working again. So do you see kind of this ping pong a little bit? Like he's in hiding. He comes out. Victory. Terrible fear. Hide. God talks to him and he goes back. There's this up, down kind of thing going on. You see that? Irrational fear, kind of false sense of isolation, and this emotional high and low. Okay. Those are the indicators in this story that I want you to remember and pay attention to. The symptoms. Irrational fear, sense of isolation, and emotional ping ponging. Now I specifically want to talk about Jezebel. Jezebel, what are some words, uh, (laughs) I'm not looking for bad words, what are some words that you could use to describe Jezebel in this story? Cunning, she's intentional, right? She she was a princess. She gets royalty, and she comes in, she has an agenda. She has an agenda to, to maintain this new position of power and use it for a purpose. Hunting, very good evil yes she so i guess this is the place to talk about it. it's in my notes here so she there's this guy named naboth who has a vineyard and the king would kind of like this vineyard so what does jezebel do kill him and we'll take the vineyard no sense of boundary i'm going to use my position to just take and gain what i whatever i can for it evil what else yes She comes in. Not only is she pulling strings related to Ahab, not that he's passive in this. He's going along with her. But she cuts off the prophets of the Lord and brings in other prophets. And the Bible says that these prophets ate at her table, which the implication is she gets rid of people who would speak truth. And she brings in people who are on her payroll who will say what she wants them to say so that she's controlling the situation around her to maintain this position of power and to use the people around her for her gain and her benefit. Any other thoughts? Yeah, yep, hugely. Um, When Elijah disobeys, she immediately turns to threats of violence and death. She's using that power to keep everyone in line, immediately turns to that. So my two words that I used for Jezebel is that she's a manipulator and a controller, which is more or less kind of what everybody said. The spirit of manipulation and control uses others for its own gain and it disempowers them to maintain that control. Spirit of manipulation and control will use others for its gain and will work to disempower the people around it to maintain that position of control. So I want to talk about a spirit of manipulation and control. I'm going to give you another word for it. Um, It's a word that potentially could carry... Some baggage or it could carry a lot of thoughts and feelings for you. Maybe you've never associated this word with it but when you study the scriptures and when you study the spiritual realm a spirit of manipulation and control is witchcraft. Everybody say witchcraft. Witchcraft. Everyone say a spirit of manipulation and control is witchcraft. And when you look at what witchcraft is and what witchcraft does, it disempowers the people around it, tries tries to use power for its own gain and to control what's around it. So do you see that correlation between witchcraft and a spirit of manipulation and control? Okay. I'm going to give you two pictures maybe to help understand that a little bit more. When Allie and I were on a family reunion, it was a cousin reunion that our cousins did. It was really fun. We went to Colorado. And um, I'm not sure what night we were there that this happened, but We were in a hotel room, and I woke up in bed, and I had had this really intense dream. Um, It wasn't intense in like a – like I woke up panting or that kind of intense, but there was an intensity to the dream. Just watching what I was watching in the dream was very intense. I saw this tall tower, and for some reason I associated it with a clock tower. I haven't given much thought into that yet, but I feel like that's probably relevant. Um, And there was a man in a black cloak – Was at the top of this tower watching everything that was going on around him. And in the dream, I knew that he was an overlord. Um, I don't, that's not like a word I've studied. I don't, I'm not trying to tie that to any kind of spiritual significance, but I just knew this man is an overlord. And I woke up and I knew, this may be out there for some of you, but I knew that in my dream I'd encountered a very real spiritual power and authority in that area who was an overlord in that area, something that. Um, was keeping an eye on and watching and attempting to control and uh, have power in what was going on. And the reason I know that is because of the intensity that was behind the dream. I've had lots of just random dreams, but there was an intensity to this. Another picture, Allie and I were driving uh, in, like, the North Hill area by Edgewood, and when we've been there before, we both have said, this area just kind of feels like witchcraft. Like, we'd said that to each other a few times. It just feels dark. Um, And if you live there, by the way, don't, like no shame on you. You don't have to like carry that for yourself. You don't have to be under that. Um, but it, it doesn't deny the fact that there are places where there are very real spiritual powers, powers and authorities at work. So whenever we've driven through there, we've just, this kind of feels like witchcraft. And there, we were going on this road and there's this house and it's kind of an old looking house. And it has this tall part tower, similar kind of at the top. Uh, and driving by, we both looked at it and we we're like, There's something funky about this house. And I don't know if, like, really that house is connected to what we were feeling, but it was a really incredible picture. Allie describes it as if, like, in the days of serfdom, that would have been the house where the person in charge of everyone would be up and watching and able to keep an eye on everything that was going on around it to make sure they were in line and doing what they were supposed to be doing. Those, to me, are two pictures of manipulation and control. Okay, I want to just talk about kind of maybe – de witchcraft a little bit for us uh, because so Allie and I grew up differently related to witchcraft and lots of different things. We grew up differently. Allie had always been told it's not real when you see like the, the movies and the witchcraft and stuff. It's not real. I grew up, Angie, that's very real. Be very careful about witchcraft. <laughs> you, you do not want to mess with that. It's very real. Uh, so we had like two different perspectives and when we went to school um, we started learning about the very real power of witchcraft in the spiritual realm, but it wasn't just this like fear thing that I personally had taken. Not that, Mom and Dad, you put that on me, but that I had interpreted like, oh, just stay away from it. Um, and it's also not this like fake thing, um, but that it was very real and it's intentional and there's a spirit of manipulation and control behind it. So some places in the Bible that talk about witchcraft, you can write these down or you, you don't even need to turn there because I'm just going to talk about them. Um, in 1 Samuel 28, 7, Saul is in a place where he, King Saul... Um, is needing some direction from the Lord. And he's kind of gone down a road of not really listening to God very well, and he's in a scenario that uh, is potentially dangerous, and he wants to hear from God, but God's not speaking to him. And Samuel, the prophet that had anointed him, uh, is dead. And so Saul doesn't know what to do. He's not following God's directions. He's impatient, so he tells his men to go and find the witch of Endor. She's a medium, and he knows that she can summon the dead. So he goes and and gets the witch, and she summons Samuel, whether it really was Samuel or was a demon or who knows what happened. But Samuel or something false, whatever, showed up, and they have this interaction. Um, That's a biblical example of the very real power of the spiritual realm, not just God's power, but also the demonic realm. In Acts 8, verse 9 it talks about Simon the sorcerer. I don't remember if it's Peter or Paul who's interacting. Dad, do you know and Peter maybe? Okay. Um, but there was this sorcerer that was well-known to be powerful. And he, when he saw, Peter will say, and the power that the followers of Jesus had, he recognized there's something even more powerful about that, and I want to add that to my litany. I want to use that power in my sorcery. Um, that's kind of a cool encounter. You should read about it if you haven't had a chance yet. But another biblical example of the reality of the spiritual realm, light and dark. Um, in Numbers 22, there's a cool story about uh, a man named Balaam. He's a soothsayer. So this king of the Amorites, I believe, his name is Balak. He knew that God, Yahweh, had blessed the Israelites, and he wanted to fight against them and have victory, but he knew it wasn't working because God had his blessing on them, so he thought, if there's a blessing on them, I need a curse upon them so that we can have victory when we go and fight them. So Balak summons Balaam, who is a known soothsayer, and Balak says to Balaam, I want to get their names right, Balak says to Balaam that I know that those who you bless are blessed and those who you curse are cursed. So right there, you see that people respect him as being someone who's powerful in what he does. So Balak says to Balaam, I want you to curse the Israelites. Well, Balaam is smart, and he recognizes that uh, the spiritual realm is real. And if there's this God named Yahweh who's blessed the Israelites, he doesn't want to go about cursing them if this God is going to be mad at him for doing that. So he says, okay, but I need to consult the Lord first. I need to consult Yahweh. So he talks to God, and God says, don't do it. I've blessed them. He says, you must not curse them because I've blessed them, which is cool to me that God, it was very important to God that Balaam didn't curse the Israelites. That means even God recognized that Balaam had power. Now I'm not saying that they were comparable powers, but God said, don't do it. Don't you curse them because I've blessed them. So even in the story, God recognizes the reality of, of power in the spiritual realm. That story ends school. You read that when You get a chance sometime too. Um, I just want to give you one more dream I had just as a, maybe a picture of this is for me, maybe even just an example of a wake-up call for me for the reality of witchcraft. When I was uh, um, in the dorms in college, um, I had this dream one night. It was outside the dorms. And it was really dark, and there was like this werewolf creature. I don't remember all the details. There were candles. And there was a bow and an arrow, and I remember that something shot an arrow at the dormitory, and then the, the camera in my dream, like my view kind of zoomed in, To the dorm wall and the arrow is being used to write words on the wall some kind of inscription and i woke up um and again just a very real example that there are dark spiritual forces that are against us you guys with me the spiritual realm is real god is real but there also is a demonic realm that's real that is out to control and manipulate and destroy okay um so we've already said witchcraft is a spirit of manipulation and control but i just want to break that down further anyone familiar with the harry potter movies or books Ali and I love them. Uh, I know that sounds funny because I'm talking about witchcraft, but I love them because it's a very cool, fantastical portrayal of the battle between good and evil that's represented in here. There's one point where in the Ministry of Magic, kind of their government, um, a new person has risen to power, and his plan is to start, uh, manip- to start enslaving or killing the humans and the mudbloods. Mudbloods were people who were like parts – which and part human. So the idea was the Ministry of Magic, the governmental part, thought that people who were just pure magical blood um, should be in power. And they would use the people around them, either kill them or enslave them or somehow use their ability to be above them. It's that same kind of manipulation and control we've been talking about. And there's a statue that was erected in the Ministry of Magic. And the statue says magic is might. And the picture is the minister... I believe, are some of the people who are in the Ministry of Magic on top of this stone tablet. And all of the people who are humans or mudbloods are underneath this stone, and they're standing on them. And you can see the people being crushed and enslaved underneath it. It's an incredible picture of witchcraft, manipulation and control, using them for gain, disempowering them, controlling them. Okay, um, one further example about using for your own gain. So, I had a friend. Her name was Tammy. I knew her in Iowa when I was in high school, and she um, came to Jesus through a really cool encounter with our pastor. But her history was she grew up in a family of witches, and she was being raised to be like she was a third generation witch, so she was going to be like the head witch of i don 't know how that all works um, but she came to Jesus. And so she had all these incredible stories about the reality of the spiritual realm that she'd experienced before Jesus and then coming to Jesus the way that he just infiltrated that and, and redeemed it. Really, really cool stories. So I would go to her sometimes when I had questions about demonic things because I knew she had experience with them. And so I was on my senior class trip in New York. And um, has anyone been to New York? They have all the little markets on the streets. There's lots of places that have markets like that. Um, but my class was walking down, and there was a guy who worked at one of the markets. And I looked at him, and I could just tell something was off a little bit. He was dressed nicely, but like in the used carman, used car salesman kind of sense, like the stereotype of that. Where uh, so he was a little overweight, but he had the suit and tie. But it, I could like, he looked kind of greasy. He had yellow hair slicked back. Just, I could tell something was wrong. Not just, like, in a greasy sense, but something inside of me was just, like, be careful. And so we made eye contact. And, like, kind of sounds crazy, but we made eye contact, and his eyes flashed, like, this white-yellow flash, like, at me. And I was, like, I looked away, broke the eye contact, and just kept going. And I thought, did that really just happen? Like, I was looking at him, and his eyes flashed at me. And so I didn't, like, feel weird or anything, so I just kept going, other than just knowing that was really strange. I don't know what just happened. So I got back to Iowa, and I was like, Tammy, this happened. Do you – I told her the story of what had happened. Um, I didn't tell her what color the flash was. I just said his eyes flashed at me. Do you have any idea of, like, was that something? Or she said, well, there's something called a spiritual vampire, and they will try to prey on other people's spirits, their power. They will suck energy and drain energy from them. Spiritual vampires, if you're weak, it's effective. If you're strong spiritually, it's not effective. What color was the, like, when the eye flashed, was it, like, a white-yellow color? And I said, yeah, it was. And she said, well, that, that's what it was then. They're like, huh, didn't know that was real, didn't know that was a thing. I'm telling you all of these stories to just kind of shift our perspective. The spiritual realm is very real, and it's around us. And even, here's the key, even when we don't know that it's real, it doesn't change the fact that it's real. And here's the next point. It's not just that it's real, but it has an intentional assignment against your life. It's very important. Satan, the enemy, the dark spiritual realm, has a very intentional assignment against your life. What do you think happens if we're oblivious to that? More powerful, more effective, right? What do you think happens if we're aware of that? When you recognize it, you can stand against it. Very important. We don't need to fear spiritual power. Sometimes Christians just stray away from supernatural things because of the association with witchcraft. Jesus functioned in the supernatural, and Jesus intended his followers to function in the supernatural. All throughout history, Christians have functioned in the supernatural. That's not witchcraft. There's a difference between a spirit of control and manipulation, using others and controlling them for your own gain and to disempower them, versus self-control i have a dream to talk about this difference um so we have a family member who uh we had sensed there might have been some witchcraft related something going on which we found out later was accurate and i was talking with her and um later on we were at home we were asleep and i woke up after this dream and i was like panting this time this was intense in like a i just got done running for my life kind of intense dream. And I'm sweating, it's crazy. Um, But the dream was we were in this labyrinth and it was me and this woman um, and she was chasing me. So in the dream, she is trying to use her power to chase me and hurt me and harm me and control me. And I'm running trying to get away. Well, finally, we're in this place in the labyrinth where I can't get away anymore. So now it's showdown time. Now it's battle. We're both speaking in tongues. I am uh, speaking in tongues with Jesus in a Holy Spirit-filled way, and she is demonically speaking in tongues, channeling satanic powers, and she goes like this and throws this huge red demon, just like that lunges at me in the dream. And I see this coming, and I'm still speaking in tongues, so I go and I throw this whirlwind back at her, and it hits the demon and sends it flying away. Now, she was using her power to control and harm me I was using spiritual power to defend and protect myself and stand up for myself. You see the difference between controlling others and using power for self-control. Important difference, but God intends us to function in spiritual power and not to be afraid of it. Okay. Here's, here's, what I, here's one of the major takeaways I want you to have from this. Anytime there's an intentional scheme against you to disempower you, to use you, to destroy you, you're dealing with witchcraft. And I don't mean anytime there's a scheme against you to disempower or control or use you that there's a woman in a black hat somewhere going around a cauldron trying to hurt you. I mean Satan is smart. I'm using the word scheme on purpose. Let me define scheme for you. Scheme is a large-scale systematic plan or arrangement for attaining some particular object or putting a particular idea in effect. Satan has a large-scale systematic plan for your destruction. He has a large-scale systematic plan to weaken you and disempower you and use you and destroy you. That means likely there are some women in black hats out there probably somewhere that are partnering with his assignment for your life. But there are also people who have no idea they're partnering with. Your boss says something to you that is partnering with that spirit. Uh, There's a very real demonic presence that is... Coming in and making you feel fear, making you feel insecurity, whatever it looks like. Any time there is an intentional scheme against you to disempower, use control or destroy you, you're dealing with a spirit of witchcraft, control and manipulation. John 10:10 says, "The thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy." 1 Peter 5:8 says, "Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour." Revelation 12, 10 says, the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. This is an ongoing systematic scheme for accusation, for your destruction to control you. Isaiah 54, 17 says, no weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. I made that the last verse on purpose, because that verse doesn't just say there's a real enemy out there who's coming to attack you. This verse says, No weapon forged against you will prosper. Two reasons that's important. One, that assumes that there are weapons forged against you. The name of my message is invisible weapons. That's two goals. One, I want you to be aware there are very real invisible weapons forged against you for your destruction, to control and use you. But not to end there, your inheritance in the Lord is to refute every tongue that accuses that those weapons will not prevail. But if we're not aware that it's going on, sometimes those weapons do prevail. Often they prevail if we're not aware. And that's, I'm going to get to that. Um, I have a story to demonstrate the awareness factor. So I was in the car with my boys the other day, and Zayd wanted me to tell him a story, and he wanted a Star Wars story. He always asks for Star Wars stories. And this time he said, I want everybody to be invisible. I'm like, why would I tell a story that everybody's invisible in this story? Like, what's the point of that? I want everybody to be invisible, dad. Okay. Okay. So I'm telling this story. Everyone's invisible. And the story goes somewhere to where ultimately this character is able to see. And he starts recognizing. They've talked before about how there might be bad guys out there who are against them. But some people don't really know if they're real, and even if they are real, they don't know how to fight against them because they can't see them. And this character, when they're finally able to see in the story, they recognize that bad guys are real, and now I can fight back. And as soon as I told that story, I realized, oh, that's, the important, like, that's for this message. It's so important that we see and recognize the scheme of the enemy so that we're able to fight back. I'm going to explain where we're at in this, so you have like a, this is where we're going. I'm going to tell you one more story to demonstrate Isaiah 54:17, 17, how um, weapons don't prevail. And then I'm going to, we're going to go back to those indicators, irrational fear, isolation, and emotional ping-ponging. And then the conclusion is our response to that. So here's the last story. There's a guy named Graham Cook. He's a really incredible teacher. And he tells a story about a time when he was in his office and he never answered his phone But this day, for whatever reason, his assistant was gone. He was there late, and he decided to answer the phone. And on the other – as he answers the phone, there's this yellow sulfuric smoke that enters under the door and fills his room, this cloud. And this person is on the phone and says he's a Satanist that has a demonic assignment against his life, and he proceeds to curse Graham. All these curses about your family and your ministry and destruction, and it's all coming down, and you won't have any power and all this stuff. Well, God had just been teaching Graham Cook about, um, about the idea that God's going to take every weapon forged against you, every curse, and turn it into a blessing. And so Graham was in a really good place because he thought, bring it on. Like, curse me as good as you can because God's going to take every one of those things and turn it around to a blessing. So the guy's done. The Satanist is done. And Graham actually says to him, is that all you've got? Like, I expected something better from a Satanist. So the guy gives it all he's got, curses him once more. And Graham says to him, You thought you had a demonic assignment against me, and that's why you're calling me. But what you don't realize is that I have an assignment for you. God says, I'm coming to get you. And the guy hangs up, and the the cloud leaves. So like a year later, maybe, same scenario. Never answers the phone. He's in his office late. His assistant isn't there. And uh, the phone rings, so he answers it. And he says, hello? And the guy says, hi. So... um. I was the Satanist who called you like a year ago. Do you remember me? And he's like, yeah, I remember you. Like God's been using those curses and turning them into blessings for me. And then Graham says, wait, 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 hang on. You said you were the Satanist. And he said, yeah. So I was really angry after talking to you because I'd never encountered someone who like stood up to me quite like that. And not only that, but I've cursed many Christians and many ministers and watched their ministries and families just crumble in front of them. And yours wasn't. And so I didn't know, know what was going on. I wanted... I'm not used to not having that power, and so I was angry, and I've been trying things to become more powerful. And he was meeting with uh, the other Satanists in the coven that they had, and they were around this fire. I think they were going to do some animal sacrifice or something like that. And as they were around the fire, this white figure showed up in the middle of the fire, and it was Jesus. And Jesus stepped out of the fire and touched each of them on their mouths, and they all were slain in the spirit and started speaking in tongues. I think they were slain in the spirit. I think that's part of the story. Either way, they had this encounter with Jesus and they all started speaking in tongues and they knew that they were saved. And so the guy says to Graham, so basically my entire covenant and I are now in hiding because all the other Satanists are out to kill us because we converted and now now we're for Jesus. And so they have this conversation and the guy just said, I just wanted you to know God came and got me. Um, So I love that story because it's just an example that we don't have to be afraid of the spiritual realm and the dark side of the spiritual realm, but we need to be very aware of it. Okay, we're going to go back to the indicators, the story of Jezebel and Elijah. Indicator one, irrational fear. He has this incredible victory, and then he runs in hiding, and he's afraid for his life, and he just wants to die. The message I heard said, when you have irrational fear that's plaguing you, you might be dealing with witchcraft in your life. There is an intentional scheme against you somewhere that is bringing about this irrational fear. If you recognize Either that in general, you're a person who has a lot of fear over your life, or if there's just a season, like for me, where I recognize I am just afraid all of the time, that should be an indicator for you that there's a demonic assignment against you. I need to be aware to figure out how I can stand against that thing. Indicator two, isolation. So Elijah, I'm the only one. There's no one left. God says, no, there's 7,000 I've reserved. You're not the only one. When you are feeling like I'm the only one, no one's going to get me. No one's going to understand. I'm in this by myself. Isolation is another indicator that there's a very intentional scheme at work to destroy you. And finally, emotional ping-ponging, up and down and all over the place. That's a huge indicator. There's something else at play that is trying to come against you and trying to affect you. In our culture, we've been taught to think that our minds are our own, that I am responsible for my thoughts and that everything that goes on in my head is me. In other cultures that embrace the reality of the spiritual realm, they believe that spiritual interaction is very real. We sometimes think, we personalize everything we feel. We're going through a serious depression. We're, um, we're just feeling really insecure. And we think, gosh, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling this way? I'm, I'm so terrible. We feel really accused. Whatever it might be, we, just, we personalize it all. Those things are real. There is a demonic scheme to destroy your life, and it's so important that you recognize it's not just me. It's not just me putting these lies in my head. It's not just me thinking these thoughts. And when you can be aware that it's not just you, in that moment, you're empowered to take a stand against it. The last indicator we didn't talk about before, but I'm going to talk about because prophetically, I feel like this is a big one for Celebration Center. In the story, Ahab, when Elijah approaches him, Ahab says to Elijah, you are the troubler of Israel. You've caused this drought. And Elijah immediately is able to turn that around and say, it's your fault there's a drought, it's not mine. But Ahab comes in with this accusation. I believe that accusation um, not only is another indicator of that scheme of witchcraft, but it's one of the most effective schemes that Satan has to disempower and destroy you. If there's something wrong with you, if you are allowing accusation or feeling and being weighed down by accusation against you, if there's something wrong with you, you are incapable of fighting back. When we live in a place where we accept or embrace accusation over ourselves, there's something wrong with me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I'm too wicked. Whatever it might be, when I live in this place of accusation, If I'm not strong enough or I'm not good enough, I am completely disempowered from fighting back. If I don't believe that I am capable in God's kingdom and there is goodness that is inside of me in his kingdom, if I allow that accusation to dwell inside of me, I cannot fight back. And you might be thinking, well, Jesus, but Jesus does it. I don't need to fight back. Jesus does it. That's not how it works in the kingdom. Jesus did it, but he did it. And he left and brought the Holy Spirit to make it real in our lives. Uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit, the last one, is self-control. And I used to, when I was thinking about self-control as a child, I always thought that that meant like keeping myself in line, doing what I'm supposed to do. What I've learned is that self-control is one of the it's part of the fruit of God's kingdom. He doesn't control us. He doesn't want to control us. He wants sons and daughters who share in his inheritance, and he wants friends. And so if he would just come in and rescue us all the time and deal with all this, it would thwart the maturity process inside of us. The very nature of needing to step up and fight back is about us becoming who we are in the kingdom, becoming sons and daughters, becoming co-heirs, becoming friends and partners. And so we could just think, well, all this is going on, but God's going to take care of it. If we do that, we're going to live in that place of accusation and let Satan um, control and manipulate and use and destroy us, and we'll never walk in the inheritance and the heritage that God has for us. We have to learn to use spiritual power. Having and using power is not bad. Using power to control and manipulate people is bad. OK, so there's a church in Oregon, what city that church is in the one we went to sometimes. What is it? Albany. It's in Albany. And um, I heard a story of some people who were there. Uh, there was a coven of witches who had sent some witches in to infiltrate the church and be a part of the congregation and from kind of from within cause division. But through the process, at least one of them encountered Jesus and, and became Christian. And they were talking about um, the spiritual realm and they were explaining about praise. So now we're talking about how we fight back. Praise is one of the most effective ways when you recognize that irrational fear, when you recognize that isolation and you recognize there's a scheme against you, praise is one of the most powerful weapons. The witch was explaining that when the Christians praise, particularly this I don't get all of this, but particularly she said, when they clap your, when you clap your hands, it throws confusion into our camp. And the worst, the worst is when you dance. When the Christians dance, it totally messes us up. Declaring God's goodness Praise is declaring his goodness, but also my intention to lay hold of that goodness. When I praise and I'm excited and I'm celebrating, I'm saying, God, you're good, and I get to participate in that. And I am going to lay hold of and enjoy and fully participate in your goodness. When you do that, when you make that decision and say, I'm going after it, you're not a victim any longer. Satan only has power over you when you're a victim. The spirit of manipulation and control and witchcraft loses power when you cease to be a victim. In God's kingdom, you're not, a vi- you're not a victim. We fight back by recognizing God wants us to have self-control. We fight back with praise. Okay. Here's the conclusion. When you feel fear, when you feel isolation, when you have emotional ping-ponging, when you feel accused, it's not just in your head. It's not you target your enemy declare god's goodness fight back it's your inheritance this comes from romans what then shall we say in response to these things if god is for us who can be against us there is no condemnation there's no accusation that should harbor inside of us to keep us from fighting back and laying hold of what god has for us um I want to pray about accusation, that idea that something is wrong with us, because I do believe that's the core thing that keeps us. That's his key strategy right now, tactic that keeps us from fighting back. It nullifies your fight and your power. Um, so, Ali, do you want to come up here with me? you grab that mic? So today, we're going to pray a little differently. Um, I'm having Ali pray with me because I feel like this is really important, and I want... Um, kind of like a battle ally that we can feel it out together and pray into what it is that God's doing. Um, And I haven't even fully thought through how I'm going to do this. Um, If you feel accused, this is for you. I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you come up. I'm not going to have you do anything. Um, I just want you to know this is for you, and we're going to do battle for you. Um, If you are dealing with irrational fear or isolation or anything like that, um, this is for you too. But I really want to deal with the spirit of accusation um, that is connected to manipulation and control so we can start that army rising up in here that that song talks about. Um, So we're just going to pray for a little bit, and and then we'll conclude from there. God, this is a big topic, and uh, you're doing something. So I just ask you to, to start by stirring inside of people. All of the places where fear has laid hold of us, all of the places where we have felt isolated and alone, All of the places where voices of accusation have come in inside of us and have come with lies and strategies and tactics to disempower us and hold us down and hold us back. God, would you stir in those places and let people feel those places right now? Would you identify and pinpoint those places inside of us?
1: God, thank you that you have, <coughs> you have really, really good thoughts about us and for our lives. For the places where our own minds have trapped us into feeling something or thinking something about ourselves that you do not speak over us. God, thank you that you said that we would be be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yeah. So would you come into our minds and kick out all of the thoughts that are not from you? We want to see ourselves the way that you see us. We want to see you for who you really are, and we want to see the world around us for the way that you see it. anywhere where other people have spoken lies about, about us, God, we repent from believing those and we let go of those lies and we instead ask for you to come in and fill our minds with the way that you see us. God, for the places that there are fears that have slipped in that have become our way of life. Yeah. And that we don't realize are are not good, but we think it's a good thing or um, a safe thing. God, would you start to stir those up inside of us? Would you start to stir your thoughts and your feelings and the way that you see inside of us so we recognize the difference between your truth and the truth that we've been believing Because we want to function and live completely in truth, and that is who you are. So places where we've had double-mindedness, where we've been functioning in fear and not realizing that it's been over us, we repent and we change our minds on that. Would you teach us each day? to choose truth, and to choose truth again, and to choose truth again, and to choose truth again. Thanks that your love is very strong, and that when you come in, and when you, when we encounter your truth, and we encounter your love, you start kicking out fear, and banishing fear inside of us. Would you do that every morning as we wake up, and as we go up throughout our day?
0: I bless you in the name of Jesus to prove the spirit of accusation wrong. I bless you to stand up and say no more and to push back and to fight. I bless you to prove it wrong. Prove it wrong by your fight. Prove it wrong by laying hold of the inheritance that God has given you. God, would you come and put really big swords in our hands and put really big shields on our arms and change our thinking i see these like claws in our brains um that are related to this idea and this mentality that either i'm not supposed to fight back or i'm not capable of fighting back it's wrong and it's not true and we do business with that today in the name of jesus so god would you bring a release to those claws in our minds and would you just come holy spirit and bring courage inside of us to stand up and say enough is enough I will prove that spirit wrong. I will fight back. I will stand. So in the name of Jesus, I bless you to see your identity in Christ, to see yourself as a son, to see yourself as a daughter, to see yourself as a friend, to see yourself as a partner, to see yourself as capable in his kingdom, as capable of pushing back darkness. You are capable of pushing back darkness In the name of Jesus, God, that's a really good one. That's a good thing for this congregation to hear and to know. Would you plant that very deep in our spirits that we are capable of pushing back darkness in your kingdom in the name of Jesus? So, God, would you come and and bring a belief, a faith for that inside of us? Celebration Center, in the name of Jesus, I bless you to know that you are capable of standing and pushing back darkness that you are not a victim to it, that you don't have to receive it, that you don't have to take it, that it doesn't get to control you. You are not under a spirit of control and manipulation in the kingdom of God. You are under a spirit of freedom as sons and daughters. So God, would you release us to walk in that spirit of freedom and that spirit of life and no longer to function under manipulation and control as victims? We refuse that and we say yes to taking what is ours in your kingdom. We say yes to taking up our swords. We say yes to taking up our shields. We say yes to taking our territory. We say yes to pushing back darkness in your name, Jesus.
1: We choose to celebrate you today, yeah. right now, and to praise you for who you are because you are good and you are strong and you are powerful And your goodness is toward us as well. Your kingdom is very strong. And you are not afraid of darkness, God. And you have not called us to be afraid of darkness or afraid of failure or afraid of shame or afraid of guilt or afraid of letting you down. We stand in who you are, and we stand in in your love that is so good and so strong. We stand in your truth, and we stand in your words. And we choose to remember you at every moment of our day. Would you cause us to remember regularly throughout a day how good you are and how your good, your goodness, is the thing that pushes back evil? That your light is the thing that cuts through darkness and disperses darkness, even in the darkest of rooms, in the darkest of places inside of ourselves or inside of the people around us? God, thank you for setting us free from darkness inside of ourselves. Think that that, that's not what you have called us into. You didn't call us into a life of feeling like we're alone and in the dark. You've called us out into the light, and into who you are. And God, thank you that that is part of our identity to call other people to see you and to be be lights, to disperse and to cut through the darkness and the people around us. more and more and more with your light to cut through the darkness inside of ourselves but especially around the day once that happens to cut through the darkness of the people that we love around us and the people that we meet on the street around us because who you are is so so good and is so, so strong. There is nothing that stands in your way.